Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Our scripture reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 16 and verses 2 through 5 and 27 through 35. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out to this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they take in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna, it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. I was thinking about tomorrow being Memorial Day. What is the official greeting. You know, it doesn't seem right to say happy Memorial Day or have a good Memorial Day because Memorial Day is a day of remembrance. It's actually a day of grieving of all that we lost for the sake of freedom. But it doesn't really sound right to say have a good grief or grieve well tomorrow. I treated myself this weekend, uh, my wife's away, and so I love historical uh, documentaries, so I watched the series on Netflix called um, uh, Medal of Honor. It's the highest honor we give people in the military uh, for bravery. And uh, so in this series, they would take a person, they would tell his story, they'd tell his whole life, even afterwards, and how the Medal of Honor impacted them. Some of them had passed away uh, and, and they got it uh, after their death. But 
for many of them, they were alive, so they were able to tell the story. And so I'm revealing a little bit about myself. I'm a a geek by nature, and so I love these things. One of the stories uh, that you can watch, it's about a Medal of Honor winner named uh, Sergeant Carter. His first name is Edward, and and, uh, Edward Carter is an African-American. He fought in World War II in the Army. And there's a couple of things that are unique about his Medal of Honor. Uh, the first one is simply, uh, we didn't give Medal of Honor um, to African Americans during World War II. Not one. In fact, we didn't give a Medal of Honor to an African American for World War II achievements until 1996. Seven were awarded to soldiers from World War II and he happened to be uh, one of them. Secondly, uh, African-Americans during World War II were not allowed to command white troops. And even though he achieved the rank of sergeant, he was not allowed to have white people in his uh, company. And so, because he wanted to fight alongside uh, uh, the white soldiers that had become his friends, he resigned his commission and took his stripes away and became a private again to fight alongside. And what he's known for is when his company, uh, all whites in him, were pinned down, he told uh, his uh, sergeant, I'll go get these uh, German nests that were pinning them down, machine gun nests. And so they said, sure, thinking that he was pretty expendable at the time. And so he goes and wipes out three a German machine gun nest and captures dozens of Germans all by himself. And so because they didn't give Medal of Honor winners, they gave him the second highest award that they could give, something the president could give, but you know Congress gives the Medal of Honor, which is part of the reason it took so long. And when they asked Carter about his sacrifice, he just said, this is the cost of freedom. This is what freedom means, not just for my people, but for all people. So the very first lesson about tomorrow is that freedom is costly. And then in 2015, uh, Barack Obama was giving the, uh, a speech about commemorating the 150th anniversary of the 13th Amendment which was when the slaves were freed in the United States. And he said this, We do a disservice to those warriors of justice when we deny the scars of our national original sin that they are still with us today. We condemn ourselves to shackles once more if we fail to answer those who wonder if they are truly equals in their communities or their justice systems. What Obama is reminding us of, that it is far too easily to forget that freedom is not only costly, it is a process. That is, an emancipation alone will not make us free. It becomes a process. And so that's the meaning of our text this morning from Exodus, as we're continuing the study of Exodus, is that a couple of a million people left Egypt, former slavery, 
and walked into a desert on their way to a promised land that should have taken them a couple of weeks, ended up taking them 40 years to get there. And so the natural question that is on people's minds, why did it take so long? What's going on? It is because getting people out of slavery can be a quick thing. But getting slavery out of people can take generations. They had been slaves for 400 years by the time they walked out of Egypt into that desert. They had adopted beliefs and practices and systems of survival that were accompanying them for generations as they walked. And it's going to take 40 years to get those things out of them. They were emancipated, but they weren't yet free. Not where it mattered in their hearts. And this is so true spiritually. If you're a Christian, that means at one time... We were slaves. The way the Bible talks about it is often says that you were slaves to sin and to death. Meaning, no one got out of this life without dying. And that was the consequence of the fall of the first sin and every sin since then. For the wages of sin is death. And we're under that bondage. And because of that, we learned systems and beliefs and practices of how to live under that kind of lifestyle. When you live this way for a long period of time, you pick up beliefs and systems and practices and they go deep into your heart. And even though you might have become a Christian and it's been, you've been declared free, you may not yet experience the freedom that you were set free for, is the way that Paul would put it. And even though we have been freed, we still have many of those things in our hearts. So I want to ask just three questions this morning and walk through the text with us and kind of show you how to be free. So the very first one is, why do we need to be freed in the first place? So the second is, how is someone freed? And then thirdly, who frees us? So it's why, how, and who. So the first question is simply, why do we need to be free? I thought I was free. I'm born into a nation of freedom. And though you might be free physically, the scriptures tell us that we're not free spiritually. And so allow me to illustrate, and I think that'll enlighten us of what we need to be freed for and from. Verse 2 tells us that the children of Israel were what? They were in a desert. And what is a desert? Desert is a place where life doesn't live. That's why it's called a desert. Go to one and you will see there's not much life there and it can't sustain life without help. So why are they in that desert? First, because they had just left slavery in Egypt and they are on their way to the promised land. But secondly, it was God's plan. God led them there. And that's hard for us to understand. We get the idea that they're on their way somewhere and they're in that transitional period and it lasted too long. But what we forget is that God is the one who led them there and kept them there. 
The reason they're in this awful, desolate, dangerous place is because God led them there, and it was part of his plan. And so for 40 years, they wandered around this place. But why did God lead them there? And then ultimately, why so long? 40 years is a long time. I think we get a little bit of that at beginning in verse 2. If we go a little further, not only are they in a desert, but it says that the whole community grumbled. In fact, it will say they, they turned to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. You hear the, the dripping of the sarcasm. There we sat around pots of meat and ate food that we wanted. Now, that's not really true. That's their perception. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve, God, this entire assembly to death. This is the language of slavery. What I mean by that is that they are looking backwards rather than forward. They're looking at what they once had, and they're actually envious of what they once had in comparison to what they do have or what they will have. They long for what they had when they were slaves. And you'd say, that is just crazy. Yes, that's why it's delusional. When we are suffering, when it's hard, we get what's called myopic vision. Our field of vision, when we're going through hard things, gets awful small. Almost like a racetrack with a horse with blinders. We can only see right here. And we're trying to see what's behind because it's what we remember. Their field of vision has narrowed. But I think what it ultimately reveals is that though they have been freed, they are not yet free. Here's the principle. It is one thing to get a person out of slavery. I don't want to make too little of that. But it is a whole different thing to get slavery out of a person. Do you hear it? It's one thing to free you from slavery, but it's a whole different thing to get slavery out of your heart, particularly if you've been a slave for a while. In fact, it is a miraculous miracles, ten plagues, uh, the death of the firstborn of Egypt. It'll, they'll cross the Red Sea. Great miracles for their freedom, but it'll take 40 years to get the slavery out of their hearts before they'll be ready to enter the promised land. And we all need freedom from what has enslaved us. Living in this broken world, living as broken people in this broken world, shapes us. This idea that you could live in a vacuum and not be affected by the brokenness of our world, whether it's things that you have done or things that were done to you, that all shapes you. And the longer you lived in that without uh, the gospel, the good news of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus, the more time it has a chance to create places in your heart belief systems, practices, strategies. And I'll, I'll make the argument that many of the strategies that you develop to live in this world actually work. This idea that they don't, 
I, I think that undersells it. In many cases, our strategies for living in a broken world as broken people do work for a time. They do. So freedom is a process by which God not only emancipates us, but He's also determined to get those practices, those strategies, those heart beliefs out of our hearts. And that's why Moses will write in Deuteronomy, which is another a book just a few pages to the right of, if you have your Bibles open, is remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert for 40 years. And so it begs the question, why? To humble and test you in order to know what is in your heart. Does it, is, is God saying, I need to test you, I need to give you time in the desert so that I can see what's in your heart? No, because if, if God needs 40 years to see what's in your heart, that means he's not God. He's certainly not omniscient, all-knowing. But sometimes it takes 40 years for God to reveal your heart to you, my heart to me. And that sometimes takes time. That's what Moses is saying So, we need to be freed from those systems, those beliefs, those behaviors that we have learned while we were slaves that we have taken into our freedom. Well, how are we freed? How does it work, Bruce? There's a process here. It comes from a daily test. Do you remember uh, the the Lord's Prayer that uh, Graham led us through? You can find it on uh, uh, page... There it is, page 4. Our Father, uh, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Here it is. First request. Give us our daily bread. So God's going to test them. And every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're asking God to do the same. Same thing. Can you expose what I've been trusting in other than you. That is what's going on here. Verse 4, pick up there. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Will they trust me? On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on other days so that they don't gather on the Sabbath, on the Lord's Day. How does God get slavery out of his people's hearts? It's through hardship, and this is the surprise of the passage. We think if everything goes well, we're, we're probably in the mood to learn. If, if, if my job and my relationships and uh, my housing isn't being threatened, it, it, Those are times of good learning when in reality they're not as good learning times, are they? In fact, when things are going well, we're resistant to change because we want it to continue. We want the good times to roll. We want things to go well. And so when things are really going well for us, we're not as open 
uh, to someone to talk to about our hearts. And we're certainly not going to give someone access uh, to our heart. It literally uh, takes hardship and suffering and things not to go well before we get desperate enough to say, I want this pain to stop. And so I will even open my heart that I typically keep closed to other people because I want the pain to stop. And so if you can stop the pain, please come in. That's one of the things that we learn in the desert about our lives. In the desert, there's no food. And they were hungry. They began to grumble and long for what they had back in Egypt when they were slaves. They had just experienced the miraculous emancipation and the provision of the liberator God. And what do they do? Are you going to come through one more time for us, God? Can you imagine you had front row seats to watch God through 10 different plagues on Egypt to let my people go. We've got to see all of them, including an unbelievable one. Hey, I need you to take some lambs and take the blood and put it over the doorpost, and my angel of death will pass over your place and go somewhere else. And there's a lot of beauty in that, but they saw that. They experienced that. And yet they're wondering if God's going to come through one more time because they're hungry. They just got to the Red Sea, and they got to the point where they're saying, how do we get across this body of water? There's no bridge. How are we going to make it? And then they see the dust coming of the chariots, coming toward them. They know the Egyptians have changed their mind. They're coming to bring us back to slavery or just wipe us totally out. When is God going to save us? He parted the sea. I cannot imagine. Can you imagine the few hundred are in this room? And then we walked out of here, and we walked over to the East River, and, and all of a sudden, it's parted. And we walk on dry ground over to the other side. Now, how long would that memory be with us? Within a short amount of time, they're wondering, hey, we're a little hungry here. We don't see a 7-Eleven or a place where we can go eat today. No brunch. God, what are you going to do about that? Can you imagine the audacity, the pride, the lack of trust in God? Simply because they're hungry. Revealing their hearts that though they trusted God, they don't trust God. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. Which is really our hearts, right? We, we trust Him for some big things. And then when He miraculously works that out for us, then the next time there's a challenge, hey God, are you going to come through again? Are you going to 
come through this time. Maybe he came through for a job for you, but then is he also going to come through for you for a relationship? Or maybe he gave you the relationship, but you wonder if he's going to come through with a place to live. All of those things. It reveals the hearts. What we're really enslaved to. Do you see these slaves had spent so much of their time entrusting their needs to their masters that they had left behind that they wanted to say, let's go back there where our masters can meet our needs instead of God. I can't imagine. I mean, if we, we would boo them, we would say, that's, I it is so bad. Why are you asking God who just gave you your freedom, would he also give you food to eat? So what did God do about that? He, did he say, all right, I got you this far, but I'm not taking you any farther because you're so ungrateful. No, God rained bread down every day, each day for them. But he did give them some rules because he's trying to expose where their heart is. And so he, he gave them a couple of rules, which is only take enough food for your family that day. Come back tomorrow, I'll give you some more food. And then on Friday, the day before the Sabbath, I'm going to give you twice as much so you can collect twice as much so you don't have to collect on the Sabbath so you can worship me unencumbered. Those are the two big rules. Why does God provide this way? So that they would learn to trust Him, not just for the big things of their lives, not to just get across the Red Sea or to get out of slavery after 400 years, but daily. God is not just interested in being your Santa Claus when you've got a big ticket item that you need Him to give you. He wants to be the source of your life, my life, every day, each day. And if it takes 40 years for us to learn that lesson, and we're laying on our deathbed, and finally it clicks, you know what? I'm going to trust you for tomorrow because I don't have any more tomorrows. Well, maybe that's what happens. So what did they learn? They learned to trust him every day. But first they had to find out that they weren't trusting him that they were still enslaved. So how did he do it? How did they do with their daily test? They failed over and over again. When I was in college, I remember I was on a four-year scholarship, so I wasn't dumb. Uh, I had an academic scholarship, and I remember my first set of exams that I took, and I flunked two of the four. I figured it was just like high school. You just kind of walk in, and you... And somehow, by osmosis, all that information would be there. That was not true. <laughs> they flunked all the time. This simple test, trust me, follow these rules. Verse 27, they gathered on the 7th. Verse 28, God responds, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Which is another way of saying, why won't you trust me? Did you see what I did for you? Do you see what I did for you yesterday? Do you see what I'm gonna, I've done today? Why can't you trust me for tomorrow? You, you, you keep going out there and collecting as if tomorrow I'm not going to rain down more bread. When have I stopped raining bread? That's what he's saying to them. And so, over the next 40 years, 
God rains down more bread and continues to ask, will you trust me today? They fail. He rains down bread. Will you trust me today? They fail. He rains down bread. Kind of goes on and on for 40 years. Because he's not going to let them out of the desert while they still have slavery in their hearts. Quick question, and then we have to move on. Is God the author of suffering? If God led them into the desert and they suffered there, is God responsible? It's a little more nuanced than that, but let me give you the short answer to that. No. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that God creates everything. That's what the purpose of Genesis 1 and 2 to tell us, is that God creates everything, but he didn't create a desert. So one thing he didn't create. He didn't create disease. He didn't create evil. He didn't create poverty. These things come after the fall, Genesis 3. But God uses all of that brokenness, deserts, uh, depravity, the brokenness of this world, the things that have happened to you, the things that you have done, he uses all of those things for a reason. What would his reason be? To allow hardship and suffering. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says this odd thing, Paul says. This present suffering is achieving for me, for us, a weight of glory. We kind of lose that word glory today. In the ancients, when they used the word glory, they didn't mean simply all the uh, medals you won. Glory was weight, substance, importance. And so what Paul is saying is that hardship and suffering gives me substance. I might be light before I go through this, but I'm going to be heavy when I come out. I'm going to learn some things. It's going to change me. And because God's involved... It's going to be for the better. God is not the author of suffering, but he uses it to make us more. Why does God use the suffering? Because God won't waste even our tears. Even the pain that you have experienced, the tears that you have shed. The psalm says he keeps your tears in a jar because God won't even waste the pain. That's the kind of God we have. He doesn't let us go through suffering and then stands on the other side, but he walks into the hardship with us. When I was a a little boy, I was about seven or eight years old, and there was a lot of drama in my family, and I kind of told a little bit of this story, but a fairly abusive home. And the way that I would hide as a little boy is... I read, and I read encyclopedias, and because that's what I had a lot of, and, and I would hide in the room because then all the drama would go past my room, and I would always dream of God or someone coming uh, to rescue me. And what our text is telling us is that God intends to get all of the little boys and all the little girls out of those dark rooms and save them. But he's also getting all of those dark rooms out of the little boys and the little girls. It's not enough to just get us out of the room. But salvation, freedom, is getting those dark rooms out of our hearts. 
because they shape us. They hurt us in the long run. So who frees us? This is the last question. The emphasis of this text is not upon the test. It's not even upon their failure because he keeps giving, but on the provision of the food. They're in a hard place. They're in a desert. There's no food. There's nothing that they can eat. And God provides them bread. But I find it interesting that he decides to give them the kind of bread he gives them. And so it's kind of important. You know, if he wanted them to feel bad, he could have given them rye bread. It could have been pumpernickel. (laughs) But he rains down bread that it says is sweet to the taste. He didn't have to do that. That's extra. And I think that teaches us a lesson that even in our hard things, even in the difficult things of our lives, there seems to be places where he gives us respite, where he gives us joy in the journey of pain. And I think that's what he's doing here by giving them sweet bread every day. That ultimately, do you know how they described the promised land that they were going to? It was a land filled with milk and honey. And to give them a down payment, to give them that appetizer, to give them the four pieces of shrimp and cocktail sauce as an appetizer, he gave them bread that was sweet. Every day they would be reminded of their sweet God who provided sweet bread. He rained down words for me daily. If I had not read, I would have never gone to college. And yet, God used that. That was my sweet bread on a daily basis. What's yours? Now look at verse 32. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omar. That's a measurement of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I have given you to eat in the wilderness which I brought you out of Egypt. Why? Why would he tell them to put some of that bread in a jar and keep it to show the future generations? Because this is about something bigger than daily bread. This is something bigger than physical bread. The desert points to a spiritual desert that they all experience. This broken world and the things that go on that we experience. People hurt us. We hurt other people. That's part of the world in which we live in. This physical freedom points to a spiritual freedom, the getting the world's belief systems and practices and strategies out of our hearts. And the physical manna points to a spiritual manna. How do we know that? Because we have this great commentator named Jesus who says this in John 6, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. The bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. You hear what he's saying? It's pretty miraculous here. Pretty amazing. He said all that bread in the wilderness, that little jar that we kept, it's only to point to the true bread that's sweet, that is not just for the day, but for all the days. Even the days after you have died and go on. Because he says, I am the bread of life that you feast on. So what do you do with this text? Isn't it a little weird? Have a, a 
couple million slaves go out in the desert, get a little hungry, grumble, get a bread rain down. That really is amazing. So what do you do with the text? Can you see in your own heart those slave practices and beliefs and broken places? And it's okay if you can't. You might be at the part where you just crossed the Red Sea. It could be you are uh, just been emancipated and you, you don't quite see those places yet. That's okay. Keep coming. We'll keep bringing them up because that's what God tends to do with us. Others of you, you can see them. So what are you going to do about them? Are you going to submit to the long road to living free? That is, a lot of Christians love their emancipation but are unwilling to live free. They don't want to go through the long, difficult road that it takes to live free. It's too much pain. It's too hard. Have you gotten to the point where you're willing to submit? Because it takes a lot of submission for, for 40 years to walk around in the desert and every day collect your bread. Are you willing to do that even if it takes 40 years? And then third, will you seek the help to live free? No one lives free by themselves. No one lives free by themselves. True free living requires someone else to come alongside and help you live free. Will you seek that help? One last thought, and I thought it was one of the beauties of this passage. And that, did you see how patient God is? I mean, he's had so many opportunities to say, okay, you've blown, kind of like me, you've blown one too many tests. I'm going to put you on academic probation and see if you're finally going to trust me. And they never did. Not fully. That's what Joshua will show us. Time and again, he provided what they needed. And every day, the bread showed up. And he asked them, will you trust me today? Will you put your trust in me today? And time and again, they fail. We fail. I fail. God rains down bread and it took 40 years for them to be ready to go into the promised land. So are you patient with yourself? Are you willing to get on that long road and recognize that sometimes there are no shortcuts? That it is a long road of test and failure, test and failure, trust, test and failure, trust test and failure will you have patience with yourself and then if you will have patience with yourself will you have patience for someone else one of the things that we want to do when we meet people is man I wish they were just if they would just get this if they would just change here if they if God would just transform them this moment then I can be with them if God can be patient with you can't you be patient with someone else and recognize that the road that they are on is the same road you're on? It just may mean you're a little further down the road. 
but it's the same road. And that there's going to be a time where God is going to test your trust in him the way that the other person is currently failing at their trusting God. Are we going to be a body that is patient and kind and glorious? There's where we have weight. Because I can tell you, there's not another people on the face of the planet that will be as patient as God has been with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this beautiful, beautiful picture of our lives, that you love us so much that you will not leave us on the banks of the Red Sea, that you want us to go all the way through the desert to the other side, to the place that you have promised, filled with milk and honey, place of beauty and care and rest in Christ. We pray that we can begin to see that in our own hearts and we begin to see that in the hearts of others and we can celebrate that. Let us be a people that celebrates the change that you are doing in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.